Al Jazeera podcast. Just days before her wedding, Farzana, a bride-to-be, cheerfully buzzes around a packed beauty salon, one of the most exclusive in Kabul. (laughs) It's not just a place to get her hair pressed and set. It's also one of the few safe places for women to socialize. Plus, it can bring in up to 2,000 U.S. dollars. But scenes like this are now in the past. In early July, the Taliban ordered salons across Afghanistan to close shop within a month. The Taliban sent out a text message telling hair and beauty salons that they were on the clock. These businesses have to wind up by the end of the month. This is the new reality for tens of thousands of women. The ban stretches across the country, and it will cut off their income and places for them to gather. That's another employment avenue out of the window. So what will Afghan women do? And why isn't the rest of the world doing more? I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. When I heard about the ban on women's beauty salons, similar to my friends in Afghanistan, there was not a great deal of surprise. This is Mina Sharif, an Afghan-Canadian television and radio producer. She spent more than a decade living and working in Afghanistan. It's very much in line with the continued um, announcements of decrees and bans that are focused and quite fixated on women. And since the Taliban regained power in 2021, she's watched as the restrictions on women have mounted. Women aren't allowed to travel long distances without a close male relative. A Taliban decree orders all women to cover their faces except their eyes in public. Girls in Afghanistan are barred from attending secondary schools. Women work only in some chosen sectors. Taliban have decreed that women are not allowed to work for international non-governmental organizations. But during Mina's years living there, her memories were very different, including at the salons now facing closure. I lived in Afghanistan for 15 years. That means a lot of weddings of family and of of friends. And I've been to salons that were in very rural areas in very marginalized communities without electricity, without large population to support them. I've also been to the the bigger ones in the city. I've been to the ones in the hotels. I mean, in, in every single space, it was, you know, women in a safe space, in a place where they could speak freely, where they could support each other, where they could really have a sense of joy and celebration for whatever the occasion was. Mina says that it sees women-only spaces, whether it's salons or anything else, that create an open sense of community for women, especially in an increasingly more restrictive environment. There's really an association between these salons and celebration, right? Essentially, you're there because you're celebrating something. When Mina first moved to Afghanistan in 2005, that celebration was of a return to the salons themselves. 
When the Taliban ruled Afghanistan the first time, all the salons that existed before they took control were closed. In 2001, the U.S. invaded Afghanistan, the Taliban fell, and the salon started slowly reopening. I remember different styles beginning to emerge, just like anywhere else. You know, as time went on, different styles became trendy and young girls were apprentices in in the salons and they were always so eager. There was just always a good feeling after leaving those places, for me personally, just because it really fostered a connection between me and, and women in Afghanistan from all different, I would say, economic sort of backgrounds from whether I'd been to a smaller one or a bigger one, I always walked out happier than I had walked in. Today, the reason the Taliban is giving for the ban, they said in a statement, is financial. The statement said the cost of salons for women getting married falls on the grooms-to-be, and it's too expensive. Not a lot of women bought that explanation, Mina says. You know, weddings are not a Western concept. Afghans have been celebrating their own weddings and doing it the way that they'd like to do. I I appreciate a cap on how much can be spent if you're looking out for people, but the Taliban are far from looking out for anybody. They're taking away their agency to provide for their families. The Taliban also mentioned some treatments were un-Islamic, but it doesn't seem to Mina like an issue of propriety. It's not so much what literally goes on in an all-women's space. That shouldn't be an issue for anyone's conservatism. It's a matter of wanting to, I think, take the agency of women away from them, more so than it is about what goes on in a beauty salon, which is hair and makeup. That's what brings it back to closing women-owned businesses and the lives women have built for themselves in the years between Taliban rule. This ban, Mina points out, not only affects women in urban areas, but women in every corner of the country. Whether or not you're in a, in a city center in Afghanistan or in a rural area, these salons are women-owned businesses, even from homes. They are not a part of something that arrived in the last 20 years, as a lot of people will, will try to imply. They have been around. They are, they are a symbol of women's ownership of women's careers, of joy, of celebration. And these all seem to be things that the Taliban are against. It's very in line with the themes of what the Taliban stands for, which is really taking away as much agency as they can from women. So nobody was surprised. Though the Taliban haven't banned women's employment outright and haven't mentioned plans to, Mina says it wouldn't be out of line with what's happened in the past. Women's employment at most NGOs was already banned at the end of 2022, among several other restrictions on women's employment. What women are saying inside Afghanistan is quite similar to what they're saying outside of it, which is that they are terrified of how many more rights are going to continue to be taken away from them. Rights to support their children. We're not talking about, in the case of beauty salons, rights to dress up. It's about the right to own a business. It's about a right to have a women-only space and about the concern of where else this will go. Now, the remaining professions open to women are healthcare and teaching. But when the Taliban ruled Afghanistan in the past, not even those professions were available to women. As for whether women in Afghanistan can expect that to happen again, Mina says we're looking for answers in the wrong places. 
when we talk about, you know, what can we expect to see instead of, you know, I think relying on these think tanks around the world who discuss it as observers, as people who may have visited Afghanistan, of maybe people who are currently visiting Afghanistan, or maybe people who have two passports like I do, who can leave Afghanistan. I think instead of that, why don't we just look at what the Taliban themselves are doing and have done? They have not gone out of their way to look much different than they did the first time that they were in power in Afghanistan. The first time they were in power in Afghanistan, women and girls were not allowed in school and they said it was temporary. And that temporary lasted until they were toppled. And everything looks like it's going down that same path. And the concern from women is never the exact right that's being taken away, but the fact that they're continuously taken away and that there doesn't seem to be anyone batting an eye. Uh, Rather, everyone just sits around and asks each other, what may or may not happen. I think the Taliban is showing us very clearly what they want to happen. The promises Mina mentioned have also been a factor this time around. When the Taliban came back to power in 2021, they promised to allow women to continue working and studying and to respect women's rights within the framework of Islam. But they never clarified what that meant. And Afghan women, including Mina, don't see that bearing out. Instead, they see further tightening of restrictions, especially against women. There is no logic that even they can back as far as religion or culture of Afghanistan. The Taliban are, by definition, committing apartheid, right? It's a gender apartheid happening in Afghanistan. So, you know, if we look back through that lens and say, what is going on in Afghanistan? Well, right after right after right after right is being taken away from women. The right to work, the right to provide for their children in that sense, the right to pursue an education so that they might be able to better provide for their families. Anything that allows for women to have um, not only agency over what they do, but over providing for their families, over making Afghanistan uh, a better place for their children through their own experience. That's all being taken away. So the motivation, to me, looks very anti-Afghanistan, and it certainly looks anti-women. More on how Afghan women are responding to this latest ban after the break. I'm Charles Dance, your narrator for Hindsight, a dramatized podcast from Al Jazeera. In this season, we hear from some of history's most notable women, an unconventional and extraordinary artist. Me? I am Frida Kahlo. A communist revolutionary. Everyone in China knew my face. You've heard of them. Now it's time you hear from them. Hindsight. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. It's a matter of days before beauty salons are shuttered across Afghanistan following the Taliban's mandate. This week, small groups of women in Kabul took a stand, going out into the streets to protest in front of one salon. Women are protesting this ban on beauty salons the same way that they have protested all of the other bans. Alison Davidian is the special representative at UN Women in Afghanistan. Over the last two years, She's watched women protesting the Taliban's restrictions on women's education, their policy forcing women to cover their faces, women protesting in the capital Tuesday after the Taliban strips yet another freedom away, and restrictions on the right to work 
to be involved in politics, and to have open social interactions. The Taliban have been trying to stop women in the Afghan capital, Kabul, from protesting. They fired shots in the air as dozens of women protested against the restriction of women's rights. But Alison says the pushback from these women is about more than demonstrations. In Afghanistan right now, resistance is not only about what happens in the streets. For many women across the world, walking outside your front door is an ordinary part of life. But in Afghanistan, for Afghan women, walking outside your front door is extraordinary. It is an act of defiance. So every day, women are finding new ways to resist the status quo, whether it's on the streets, in offices, or in their homes. They need more than just local acts of resistance, they say. And many women expect the international community to help. Afghan women always tell me that they want the international community to continue to invest in their resistance, whatever shape or form that resistance takes. And this means funding programs that address women's rights uh, and women's needs. Uh, It means hearing from Afghan women directly on what their needs are and amplifying their voices and priorities. Alison says right now, for example, UN Women is supporting 60 women-led businesses across the country to create alternative job opportunities. We need to invest in these pockets of hope and invest in women. And every day we're advocating for restoring, protecting and promoting the full spectrum of women's rights. We're investing in women-led, women-focused organizations to support the rebuilding of the women's movement and creating spaces for Afghan women themselves to advocate for their right to live free and equal lives. But for Mina and the women she's in touch with in Afghanistan, investment is not enough. The international community isn't stopping the Taliban's edicts against women. And that's the problem. Many countries and the UN have condemned the Salon ban. And the UN Special Rapporteur in Afghanistan, Richard Bennett, is also using that term, gender apartheid, in connection with the Taliban's policies. Grave, systematic and institutionalized discrimination against women and girls is at the heart of Taliban ideology and rule, which also gives rise to concerns that they may be responsible for gender apartheid. The term underlines what he describes as a serious human rights violation, and maybe more. But Allison admits it's hard for the UN to make the difference they want to see. As a representative of the UN agency mandated to work for women and girls, there is nowhere in the world I would rather be than in Afghanistan. Fighting for women's rights is a matter of fierce struggles everywhere in the world. But nowhere have more lives depended on it than in Afghanistan right now. Nowhere in the world has our mandate been more challenged, our reason for being more questioned, and our impact more scrutinized than in Afghanistan. But we will continue to innovate, to rethink, to reinvent, to do everything possible to deliver with impact in the lives of women and girls. And even if Afghan women lose everything, they will not lose us. As for Mina, she says she's tying her hopes elsewhere, 
with the women of Afghanistan, starting with the salons. Afghan women will make things work. Afghan women have had to make things work for so many generations. I mean, like I said, beauty and, and beauty salons were not introduced as the international presence arrived in 2002. There'll be things done at home. I mean, in the old days, I remember hearing about updos that were that were put together with sugar and water to keep them in place. It's a matter of, you know, you, you do with what you can. And Afghans will never, ever stop celebrating who they are and their families and their happiness around each other. You can't take that away. You can impose laws that really are designed to make it as hard as possible. But the people of Afghanistan will never stop celebrating who they are. It's very important to every one of us. And that's The Take. We'll be back on Monday. This episode was produced by Faranisa Campana and Amy Walters with Zaina Badr, Sonia Bagad, David Enders, Chloe K. Lee, Miranda Lynn, Ashish Malhotra, Khalid Sultan, and me, Malika Bilal. Our sound designer is Alex Roldan. Alexandra Locke is The Take's executive producer. Ney Alvarez is Al Jazeera's head of audio.